Amen. Well, I used to have an old country preacher say, if that don't light your fire, your wood's probably wet. <laughs> I was in the old foothills of North Carolina where I lived for a little while. And uh, if you'll grab your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Nahum. And you may be thinking, Nahum, I don't even think I can find that in the Bible. It's a great opportunity to use the table of contents. Um, we'll be there. If, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the pew Bible in front of you. It'll be page 782. It's a little teeny book in the Old Testament. We're in this series called Greater Comfort um, here going through the prophet Nahum's book. Uh, after that, we'll go through Habakkuk. And, um, and yeah, you may be thinking, oh, never heard of that book either. Well, we're a church that believes uh, the entire scripture is breathed by God and every word of it is profitable for instruction training and, and teaching and righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so uh, we love to read through books of the Bible and preach and teach on that. So um, hopefully you found it or maybe you got a mobile device and uh, able to grab that there. And we're going to read the last verse of chapter one um, and then we're going to read uh, chapter two. And so hopefully you've had a chance to find it. And uh, let's begin reading chapter 1, verse 15. It says this, Now behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Then chapter 2, says, the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For the plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. Their cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped and she has carried off her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves, beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble. Anguish is in all the loins. All the faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where the lions and lionesses went. Where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs. And he strangled the prey for his lionesses. His cave, he filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke. The sword shall devour 
your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. The voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to worship you with our minds, giving you our attention, giving you our focus, we ask God for grace. I pray for grace that you would take a sinner like me and enable me, God, to communicate your truths. We pray, Father, most of all, that we would see Christ in the midst of scriptures. We would see your glory. We would see your love. We would see your power. We would see your majesty and be in awe of who you are, Lord. I pray that you'd speak to every heart in here, Father. And there, as you're in your seat, would you just have a little conversation with God? Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, that's, that's not really important. Maybe you don't talk to God a lot. Maybe you've never talked to God. Maybe you talk to him all the time, but I just encourage you and challenge you to have a little conversation with him right now, just in the quietness of your heart. Maybe you would pray something like this. Lord, speak to me. Just pray that quietly. Lord, speak to me today. And then say this, for I intend to obey. For I intend to obey. Father, may the words of my lips and God, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our refuge. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in the book of Nahum. We got this strange passage, right? And it's got like, there's chariots, there's spears, there's, there's flashing lightning, there's people moaning like doves, um, there's a palace melting. Uh, I don't really know what's going on here. And this is probably why I don't read the Bible a whole lot, because it's got weird stuff in it like this. Don't act like you never said that or thought that in your own mind, because I've thought that before, right? You're like, what does all this mean? And, um, and so obviously, prophetic books, books written by prophets, contain prophetic language, right? And so there, there is a poetic language in that. Just like if, if this week, as you prepare your heart for Valentine's, whether you've got um, a spouse or a significant other to love, or you're just going to love on your family and your siblings or your neighbors, right? Maybe you wanted to recite a poem to them, right? Roses are red, violets are blue. Will you say I do? Right? You know, I mean, I don't know if that's how you're going to propose or something like that, right? But, you know, there, there are, you use poetic language to evoke emotion, right? You know, that's the point of poetic language. You can see the poetic language that Nahum is using here to communicate something. So the title of today's message is Ruins. Or restored, and so um, the, the book of Nahum is is actually, if you're not familiar with it, it's actually a sequel. It's actually Jonah, part two, right? You may be familiar with Jonah. Many people are. There's like kids, movies made about him. You know, he's he's the prophet who goes to this place called Nineveh, which is the enemy city of the people of Israel. Nineveh is the capital of the empire of Assyria, and Assyria is constantly attacking those people. And uh, but God even loves wicked people, and he desires them to come to know him and to turn from their sins, to turn from the destruction that will one day come upon and become his people. He's ready to forgive all of us, and that's the beauty. And so God sends a prophet Jonah to the people of Nineveh, and Jonah says, man, I don't want to go to those wicked people, right? You may be favorite of the story. And, um, and so eventually Jonah's heart changes, and he goes, and there's a great revival in Nineveh. People turn from their sins, and they, they are not destroyed, and it's a beautiful picture. In fact, it says, 
all the people of Nineveh, men, women, boys, and girls, even the animals. Man, it was just like, it was this glorious revival. But now we find ourselves about 100 years later, and they have been back to their wicked ways and their cruel ways. And they're a very cruel empire. And if you were here last week, we talked through just some of the horrific things that they do as they kidnap women, as they invade towns and spread people out and do all that sort of stuff. They're a wicked, wicked empire. And, um, and so this is occurring probably about the year 640. Um, and, uh, and, and even in this period, 640 B.C., before Christ, um, even in this period, uh, Jonah came to preach about 100 years before that, so in the 700s, if you will. But, but even um, the northern kingdom of Israel was attacked by this nation. So the people that are reading this, they have seen their loved ones, their, co- their cousins, their aunts and uncles, they have seen their loved ones been taken away, led away with, with hooks in their noses and dragged uh, out of the city and, and families separated and, uh, and put in this place and put in that place. They've watched this happen and they've seen this and as they live in the lower part of the kingdom called Judah, they see this Assyrian nation trying to attack them as well. And, um, and God has warned his people that they should turn. And, um, and so this is the period in which Nahum is writing. Uh, and actually, it's interesting. His name means comfort. His name means comfort. You think, how could there be comfort in this? And, and this is the point, is that God is pointing us to a greater comfort and, um, that is found in a relationship with him. And so... I have a picture I want to show you this morning that maybe will help us understand what Nahum is trying to teach us today, ruined or restored. Back when I was a teenager, you do all kinds of fun jobs when you're a teenager, but if you're not sure what that is, that's called sod, ladies and gentlemen. Sod is like cut up rectangles of grass that is grown somewhere where people know how to grow grass, and then you, you transplant it into your yard. And one summer, I got contracted by my grandmother's neighbor, and she said, you look like a strong young teenager, and I'll pay you to lay some sod. And me and my cousin uh, laid some sod for her. And it was quite an experience um, that we had never done before. And I don't know if her yard survived after that. But um, the point is, one of the things I learned is that you can't just go put grass on top of other grass. Right? You can't just put grass on top of the weeds. Why? Because the weeds will either, A, grow up and mix with your grass, and then you'll have a yard that probably looks like my yard, um, or the grass underneath of it, the weeds underneath of it, will die and will start to decompose and create a lovely slime that will begin to poison the roots of your beautiful new grass like this. And so what you have to do is you have to till it, you have to uproot the weeds and, and, and work from a clean foundation of, of dirt so that you can lay the correct grass there. And I believe that's what Nahum wants to do. Often God wants to do that with us. He wants to uproot our our preconceived ideas that we have about God, our our preconceived notions. He wants to uproot the false ideas that each of us have about God and replant truth. Are you with me? And so you just can't put truth over lies. You've got to uproot the lies that we tend to believe. And we all tend to believe that. In fact, there's a quote that I want to share with you, Pastor... um, Tim Keller says this, and I think it's very fitting to the book of Nahum. Tim Keller says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. See, we're here as believers, as Christians, not to worship a God of our own creation, a God of our own imagination that we think we should form God into our own image, right? No, we are formed in his image, and we need to know him as he is, truthfully. And getting his Love 
and His justice, His, his mercy and His wrath, the, the whole character of God, the full counsel of God, right, is important for us as believers. Because, like, let's just be honest. Some of you here, you only think about, the only part of God you know is the justice and the wrath of God. And so you don't even feel like you should be here on any given Sunday. You don't feel like you're worthy. You feel like you're the worst person in the church. I heard a pastor talk about he invited his friend to church, and the guy drove halfway across the city and got into the parking lot and could not get out of his car. Because he said, I don't deserve to be in a place like that because of all that I've done. And many of you feel like God is so disappointed in you because of all the disgraceful things you've done that he doesn't want anything to do with you because all you can see is the justice of God. You don't feel worthy. You don't feel like you deserve it. He doesn't want anything to do with my life because my life is so messy. If you really knew what I thought, if you knew what I did, that's how some of us feel when we only see the justice of God. But how many of you know that's not the whole picture of God? His mercy, His love endures forever. And He moves toward the broken. In fact, the reason Jesus came, He said, I came to seek and to save the lost. That was the whole purpose. Others of us, though, really focus on the mercy and the love of God. And we think God doesn't require anything of me. We think God doesn't command us to do things. We think God is like our cheerleader and just wants us to be happy. And so words like obedience, and sacrifice and discipleship, taking up your cross and following Christ are not in our vocabulary. We just think God is my cosmic slot machine or my spare tire. When I need him, I'll call him. I just keep him in the trunk instead of letting him be in the driver's seat because all we focus on is the mercy of God. So we continue to live a life outside of his character both of these misunderstandings are very real. You know what God wants to do? To uproot them from our lives and to lay down the truth of His character. And so we're going to see God's character here, both His mercy and His justice, even as we uh, said last week. And I know last week I sort of joked like last chapter, the first chapter was the easiest chapter, and it was really difficult to read through, right? And, and the second and third chapters become even more difficult. And uh, I sort of said that tongue-in-cheek, you know. Uh, but I believe God has some wonderful things for us to see about the character of God. Is he ruining or is he restoring? And so point number one, I want you to write down is this. We get to see about his character. God is restoring his people. God is restoring his people. That's the reason he came. I'm so glad that God moves toward his people. And by restoring, I'm inferring that something is wrong, right? You only restore things that are broken down, right? you got an old broken down car that needs to be restored, right? The paint is chipping and faded and, and the leather is cracked and you got to restore that car. you got a beautiful painting that has been faded by the sun and it needs to be restored. You have a broken relationship with someone in your family and it needs to be restored. God is restoring his people. Notice that, uh, and by the way, we started in chapter 1, verse 15 for a reason because actually... Um, in the Hebrew text of the Bible, that's where chapter 2 starts. Uh, that's not a problem for us. It's, it's just uh, when it was translated to English, the English translators. By the way, God didn't put verse numbers in there, so verse numbers aren't a big deal, so don't be freaking out like, oh my gosh, right? That was, that, was, that was people that put verse numbers in there so that we could study it in a public setting like this, right? When you read God's Word, there's no, like, number two there. I'm just sorry if I uh, scared anybody. No, I was like, I thought every number two. Nope, that's just, yep. All right, so... Uh, 
Chapter 1, verse 15, he begins with good news. Notice what he says. Behold, behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings what? Good news. In fact, in the New Testament, the word gospel, euangelion, what we teach and preach about Jesus is called the good news. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes what? Peace. God is proclaiming good news and he's publishing peace. And now, remember when I said about the people who are receiving this message, these are God's people that are getting this message, and they had been disobedient for a long time. And God is saying, even in your disobedience, because God judges all people, right? His people, people that are, that are not His people, He judges everybody. And so He's not like getting His kids get off the hook, but He's saying, time has come for good news. Your, your punishment is up. In fact, this time period could be related to a revival that happened in their country. There was an eight-year-old king. An eight, could you imagine that? Eight-year-old king? Got an eight-year-old. Not so sure I'd want her to be ruling everything. She tries anyways. Right? She tries anyways. But, you know, um, Sydney is, is eight. And, um, man, but Josiah had a heart. That went, and he tore down all the idolatry. He tore down all the wickedness that was going on in this country as an eight-year-old. And he restored their worship back to God. And, and there was a great revival that took place in this very likely that God is bringing this peace and this protection, this good news, because His people, His nation has turned back to Him. And so the reason why there is this proclamation of good news is probably because of that revival that has taken place in their own nation. But before that, they were being warned. And he says this, keep your feasts, O Judah. In other words, hey, you can keep partying because your parties now, your feasts are actually bringing me joy where before they would, they would cause me distress because you weren't walking with me. Fulfill, fulfill your vows. And then notice what he says. Never again. Never again. How often? Never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And who are they talking about? They're talking about the nation of Assyria and the Assyrian king. And he's saying, they are not going to invade you. And in fact, they wouldn't. This book is prophesying the fall of Nineveh, which would happen in about 20 years or so from the writing of this book. And the Babylonians would conquer, uh, and, and there would be a great fall of Nineveh, as we see even prophesied here. But he's saying, that, that enemy that you've been so worried about, they've been attacking you, never again. Reach over, touch your neighbor, tell them, never again. Never again. And listen, what, what does this translate for us as believers, right, in the New Testament? Is that, man, we have an enemy. God's people back in those days had an enemy. We have an enemy. Is his name is Satan. He is the, the, the enemy of our souls, and he is seeking whom he may devour. He is seeking to destroy families and marriages and children. He's seeking to separate people and brother against sister and all this sort of stuff. He's seeking to destroy our society. And what does God say? I have dealt with that enemy. And for the believer, never again will he pass through you. Isn't that a great promise? Never again will he pass through you because he is what? Utterly cut off. Satan has been declawed and defanged. And for the person who is in Christ, Satan can't touch us anymore. We are sealed with his spirit. We are his. And as we sung, right, um, uh, where, where we sung God, God and King, right, where, man, no one can pluck me from his hand. I am his and he is mine here in the power of Christ. I stand. Can't be plucked from God's hand. Never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is good news. This is 
peace, right? The attacks, the accusations, the harassment, the hate, the, the sin, the self-condemnation that you and I feel, the depression, it will cease because God is what? Restoring His people. He's restoring His people. And that's such an encouraging thing. Look with me as we move down to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, look at verse 2. We'll get to verse 1 in just a second. But verse 2, it says this, For the Lord is what? Restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. The Lord is restoring the majesty. Do you know you had majesty? Do you know you're supposed to have majesty? You're like, uh, uh, no, don't think so. You got the wrong person, Pastor. I think that's God's supposed to have majesty. I'm kind of like dirt. Right? It's kind of what we think. But God said He made us in His image. And His image contains majesty. So He doesn't make junk. He makes majestic people. People that are amazing and unbelievable. But we have been marred. We have been distorted by sin. By our own sin. We decimate. We, we clutter up the majesty that's inside of us. I heard one preacher one time talk about us giving up our majesty. And in fact, if you look with me at Psalm, I think we'll put on the screen, Psalm 8, verses 6 through 4, just uh, 4 through 6, excuse me. Psalm 8 says this, What is man that you're mindful of him, right? In other words, I don't think I'm a whole lot, God, and the son of man that you care for him. But verse 5 says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Reach over, touch your neighbor, and tell him, you got a crown. you got a crown. Crowned him with glory and honor. Then it says this, verse 6, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And this would eventually be said about Jesus, who would come as the God-man. And what is Jesus doing in humans? He's restoring our humanity, what we're supposed to be like. Where sin has just made us a mangled hot mess. It, it, it would be kind of like, like this, because sometimes we think that Christianity is just about forgiveness, and we don't think it's about the restoring of us. I ran a marathon uh, a few years ago, the Marine Corps Marathon uh, in Washington, D.C. In fact, my sister just recently texted me. I ran it with her, and uh, she said, hey, um, they're now doing a 50K, which is longer than a marathon. Uh, it's about 30-ish miles, and, uh, and so she's like poking at me to maybe do this with her again, and I enjoy running, but I told her, I was like, ah, D.C., D.C. is not the place I think I want to run 30 miles, you know, it's just a concrete jungle, and uh, not a whole lot to look at, but at the Marine Corps Marathon, there is this cutoff time where if you're too slow, you get disqualified from the race, you got to make it to the bridge, and this is big, you got to make it to the bridge, if you don't make it to the bridge, because they got to turn the city back on, they block off all the streets, and can't do that forever, and so if you don't make it to the bridge, the bus picks you up, you're just disqualified, you're just out of the race, right? And uh, so, but imagine though, if I broke my leg at mile 10 and I was running and I tripped on an orange and I broke my leg, right? And um, the race official came to me and said, hey, Mackie, I'm sorry you broke your leg, but don't worry about it. I won't hold that against you. You're forgiven. But you got to finish the race. That would be cruel, right? That would be cruel. And see, sometimes that's what we think Jesus is. You're forgiven, but finish the race on your own. And we forget that he is restoring our soul. 
The reason why we're broken is because stuff in our soul ain't right, and he is, he is uncovering the majesty that's supposed to be there. And so what does he do? He heals our leg. God is in the process of restoring his people. And that's what he does to heal us, to make us whole, to show us who we're supposed to be. I love what C.S. Lewis said. As he said, he said, the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature. Listen to me now. May one day, the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you may be strongly tempted to worship. You following with me? The dullest, most uninteresting person you think of is really made in the image of God, displaying, supposed to be displaying his majesty. But we look and we see a marred human being who is grumpy, who is selfish, who is self-righteous, who is arrogant, who is prideful, who is all these things, and we can't see the glory there. But God has put in us, and he's in the process of, of, uh, of washing us off, of restoring our souls. That's what God is up to in the world. Look back at the same text with me, right? Verse 2. It's, it's, it's there. I mean, yeah, verse 2. It's, it's tiny. It says, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. We think that's just poetic. But how many of you know that, that Jacob got his name changed to Israel? Jacob means, you know, cheater, supplanter. Jacob was the old guy who was cheating everybody, was being dishonest and all that sort of stuff. And then God said, no, you're going to get a new name, Israel, the one who wrestles with God, the one who is embraced by God. And so Jacob is done away with, and Israel is here. And, and this verse is pointing us back to that truth. I'm restoring Jacob as I'm trying to get them to realize you're really supposed to be Israel. You think you're this mess of a person, but I'm trying to tell you who you're supposed to be. God is restoring his people. Now look at the second part of that verse, right? He says this, for the plunderers, the plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Who is the plunderer? In this case, it's talking about Assyria, and it's talking about what has happened in Israel and in Judah. But for us as believers, he's talking about Satan, right? The plunderer. And he comes, Satan comes to ruin our branches. And what are supposed to come off of branches? Fruit. We read earlier in January where Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me. And I am you. And you will bear much fruit. We were called not only to be these majestic image bearers of God, but we were called to spread his majesty and his goodness and his love and his beauty everywhere we are by the fruit that comes off of us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus embodied that perfectly, so he's uncovering us. And as I thought about this, there was a, uh, a movie that, um, that I thought displayed this very well. It's, it's, a, it's a very deep and theological movie. No, it's not um, Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments. No, it's not the Passion of Christ. It's even more theological than that. And I want to share it with you. And because I have kids, I, I watch movies like this a lot. And so there's a picture I want to share with you. The movie is called Moana. And um, since I have four girls and one boy uh, as children, we, we went through a Moana phase where every day we watched Moana and I heard it and I have the soundtrack and we sung it every time we were in the car. And, and I can tell you. And um, all I want to say is, you're welcome. <clears throat> That'll be in your head now. If you don't know what that is, just go look up Moana, and you're welcome. But this is a character in this movie. This is called Taka. And Taka is this uh, violent sort of rock, fire, whatever it is, right? And he just attacks anybody that comes near him. He throws these 
these rock flaming things and people. He's just just angry. I mean, just a mess. And um, but really, that's not who Taka is. And, and Moana has to figure that out because she's trying to restore this thing. It's like a little rock, and she she has this calling in her life to restore because what's happening is blackness and death is coming over all the land, over all the Pacific Islands, and it's killing the crops. That's a great picture of sin and how sin invades the earth. I mean, when I said it was theological, I wasn't messing with you, right? And it's just it's destroying the crops. It's destroying the people. It's this blackness is coming in. Sort of, Taka sort of represents that, uh, represents sin just infecting everything. But, but that's not who the heart of Tafiti, his, his heart was missing. And so there's another picture there, right? Um, this is really who Taka is, um, is Tafiti, but without... The right heart, she was marred into this horrific being. And so Moana is on this quest, and Moana in, in the scene, which we're about to watch, is kind of like a picture of Christ giving every believer a new heart and, and rescuing us from our wicked, from our evil, from our nasty sort of ways. And so we're, we're going to play this now, and, um, and you can watch this picture and how Moana moves toward Praise the Lord for the gospel we preach through <laughs> Moana, right? But because of sin, we have a wicked and evil heart, every human being. And until God, through the new birth, through the regeneration, the work of Jesus Christ, puts in you that new heart, you are like to come, and I am like to come. But with that new heart, there's a brand new person. And God is the process of tearing off that that old mess and restoring us. And then do you notice how she, when she put her hands on everything, man, it just started to produce fruit everywhere. That's what we're called to be as believers, spreading God's goodness everywhere. But I love how Moana is, is like a picture of Christ. She's just moving towards this beast without fear. I love how God moves towards us, moves towards the wicked and the broken. And then here are the words that she sang. She said, I have crossed the horizon to find you. Oh, how God has said that to every one of us. I have crossed the horizon to find you. You, my child. He says, I know your name. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. And the only word I would change is, as she said, you know who you are. I would, I would change. I know who you are because I made you. And so God is in the process of restoring his people. Secondly, you can write this down as this. God is in the process of ruining his enemies. Well, thanks, Master. It's all excited about being restored. Well, you should be grateful that God is ruining his enemies because his enemies are your enemies. God is ruining his enemies. And this is where the rest of the chapter really focuses. We've only hit two verses. The rest of the chapter is dedicated to God ruining his enemies. So look back with me at verse one says this, the scatterer, the scatterer has come up against you. This, this is uh, written to the city of Nineveh. The scatterer has come upon you. What this is saying is this is God saying, I am now the scatterer and I'm going to scatter you. Or it may say in your translation, the attacker or him who dashes into pieces. And it's interesting because Assyria was actually known as the scatterer. You want to know why? It's just the mice up there, folks. It just happens all the time. Just mice. Yeah. No, I mean, they're, they're just mice. No, it's, I don't know. That's kids. It's kids up there. Um, so stay with me, though. The scatterer, right? Pastor, your, your, your brain is scattered, Pastor. That's, that's sometimes what you think, right? The scatterer, what would happen? Preach it, sister. I appreciate that. All right? 
What would happen is Assyria would invade these villages and these nations, and, and it's a very genius thing, but it's very horrific. They would invade a town, a city, a nation, and they would take the people from this group and that group, and they would scatter them in different parts of their empire to keep the people divided. Because right now I'm living, like I'm, I'm Jew, and now I'm living with the Scythians. And, and, but it's not just the town of Scythians, it's the Scythians of, of Arabians and all this. And, and we're all different, and we can't communicate, we can't work together. And, um, and so they just spread them out all over the place. And then they'd take people from other parts of the nation and put them in Israel and all those different places. And so they were known as the scatter. And God says, he says, you have been scattering, but now I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to dash you into pieces. I'm going to attack you as the enemy. And then there's a sort of crazy thing that goes on here. Man, the ramparts, that's the wall. Remember I told you uh, last week that, that um, Nineveh had this huge wall, but perhaps even 100 feet tall. And, and the city was about seven miles wide. Wide and it was on the Tigris River. It's, it's modern-day Iraq, actually, right near Mosul, uh, Iraq. And so um, they got this huge wall, and they're saying, "Man, the ramparts." That's what ramparts are, right? That's that's a wall. Watch the road. They're saying, "Man, there's an enemy coming against us," right? And and Nineveh is like, "Watch the road. Dress for battle." Actually, original language is gird your loins. In other words, like put on a cup because it's about to get nasty, right? Okay, you're about to get kicked. Collect all your strength. But I'm here to remind you that, that, that God is ruining his enemies because they're going to try to do all they can to collect their strength. And the enemy can try, but he will fail against God. How many of you are encouraged by the fact, by the truth, that the, the enemy can do all he wants to attack Christians, but he cannot prevail against them? The Bible says this, 1 John 4, 4 says, Little children, little children, you are from God. But notice, the little children... The little children, as, as John writes to us, you are from God, but you have, what? Overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit that is in you is greater than he, the enemy, the scatterer, the destroyer that is in the world. That's truth, y'all. Then look with me at verses 3 through 9. This is where it gets like crazy, right? Just chaotic, but this is God working. The shield, the shield of his mighty man is red. His soldiers are clothed and scarlet. The chariots come like flashing metal on the day that he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers, this is the, the captain of the army there, or even the, the king himself. He remembers his officers but they stumble as they go, right? Like they're drunk. Like this, this desolation has come upon them. This attacking has come to precious Nineveh that thought it was so strong, thought it was so powerful, and now they're rushing around like, like you know, ants, you know, at a picnic or something. You know, they're just going crazy, right? He says they, they stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up, right? Their confidence is in that wall. The siege tower is set up. And, and notice this, the river gates are opened and the palace melts away. Uh, if, if you remember last week, part of, again, this is prophecy before it happened. And Nineveh is thinking, we're so strong, we're so mighty, no one can touch us. They're prideful and arrogant. And, and, and this message is coming to them saying, no, you're going to be chaotic, you're going to be fearing. And in fact, it's interesting because what is described here is what those enemy nations would often experience as Assyria would attack them. They were ferocious. Their, their uniforms were red. They had these large spears. In fact, when it talks about their chariots and it says it flashes like metal and light and torches, 
they had these, what's called these skiff chariots, where they would put like the, the swords or the skiff, the curved blade, on the, the axle of the chariot. So as they came through, that axle would hit metal things and sparks would fly and would just mow people down by the legs as the chariots came in. It was, it was again, a, a genius way to do battle, but it was very cruel. And, and now the Assyrians are experiencing everything they have put on other people. But notice the river gates are opened. What happened is that the Tigris and the other river that's right next to them flooded right around the time when Nineveh fell, about 612 B.C. It flooded, and it knocked open about a huge section of their wall, and they just freaked out. And then I told you last week, the, the king at that time brought all the royal officials and all his family in there, and, and he, he heard about a random prophecy that one day this would happen. And so he just torched the palace and all the people in it. Look at the verse. The river gates are opened, and the palace what? melts away. This is prophecy before it happened being fulfilled in real time when Nineveh fell to the Babylonian armies. This is historical, by the way. Uh, you can go read all about the fall of Nineveh uh, online and check it out. Um, it says this, its mistress is stripped and she is carried off, right? Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. There's, there's just moaning. There's just, their defeat is short. They are discouraged, right? And um, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. The courage of the enemy is just waning. How many of you have had a pool before, right? And then it gets a hole in it, and you just watch out that. You know, you fill that sucker up, and then you know, you know, you can buy the cheap pools at Walmart. We get the little blow-up ones, or maybe somebody got the—I don't know—they're made out of vinyl, I guess. They're, they're a little bit tall, like this tall. You know, you can get them from the Kroger or Walmart. But that sucker gets a hole in it, and you just watch all your money just go on out there, right? Um, and the Bible saying Nineveh is like a pool, right? Whose waters just run away. Your strength, Nineveh, is, is being washed away because you put your hope, you put your trust, Nineveh, in something else other than God. You were prideful and arrogant in your own strength, in your own ability, in your own armies, in your own nation. You were prideful in that, and, and it will run away. And it says this, halt, halt, they cry, right? In other words, there's this big battle going on, and the captains are like, guys, stop, stop. And then what does it say? But none turns back. The soldiers are running. They're like, I'm out of here, man. Their strength is gone, but none turns back. And then it says, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or wealth of all the precious things. And then verses 10 through 13 says this, desolate, desolation and ruin. There's the word right there. God is ruining His enemies. Look at their courage now. Hearts melt. Knees tremble. Why? In the presence of God. Anguish is in all His loins. All the faces grow pale. And then here is a, a mark to their pride in a lot of ways because a group of lions is called a pride. And one of the things that the Assyrian Empire loved was lions. In fact, one of, because a lot of this wasn't even discovered. Remember I told you last week, up here like, Nineveh didn't even really exist. You know, the Bible is just full of fairy tales and falsehoods. And then in the 1800s, huge archaeological excavation, found all this stuff about Nineveh, found the evidence of these huge walls, found all this sort of stuff. And they're like, oh, all right, okay, I guess we'll just be quiet now. And um, But one of the things they found was some of the reliefs or some of these amazing art things that Asher Banipal, who was the... Uh, the second to last emperor of Assyria, man, he loved, and he would, he would hunt lions, all this sort of stuff, these great reliefs and pictures. Uh, but notice what the scripture says here. 
verse 11, where, where is the lion's den now? You guys thought you were lions, right? Where is the lion's den now? He's kind of taunting them, right? The feeding place of the young lions where you would grow up and train up these warriors to attack people. Where the lion and the lioness went. Where his cubs were and none to disturb. You thought you were so protected in your lair there, but it is being destroyed. And then it says this, the lion tore enough for his cubs. That's the emperor of Assyria. He would tear apart. He would tear apart nations and villages and towns and women and children and, and men. And then it says, and they strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Uh, torn flesh. And then look at verse 13. So this great mighty lion, right? And then what does God say? Behold, I am against you. And if God is against you, there is no one that can stand. And notice he says this, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Another way to translate Lord of hosts, hosts are heavenly armies. You could translate it, declares the Lord of heaven's armies. You think you've got chariots and armies? You ain't seen nothing until you've seen God's army. He says this, I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from all the earth, and the voice of your messengers, the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. And again, all this happened historically. And Nineveh fell because they trusted in their pride and their selfishness and their way of doing things and did not, as they were instructed a hundred years ago by Jonah, repent. You see, even in God ruining people, it's evidence of His grace. Did you know that? He's ruining our trust in things that ultimately won't trust us. God wants to give us greater comfort. What did Nineveh take comfort in? Their chariots, their officers, their, their own strength, their mighty military. And God says, I want to give you something greater to trust in. And so he ruins the idols that, that we look to. And that's evidence of his grace. He wants to give us greater trust, greater comfort. But as we think about these verses, and we think about us as believers, we think about an attacker that we face, right? Look at the encouragement that we find here when we see God's enemies ruined. Right? Notice again what it talks about in lions. And uh, look, look at verse 13 again. Against you. I am against you. The lions are devoured. And uh, you, may, you may know this in 1 Peter. We'll put it on the screen. 1 Peter 5.8 it says this. Be sober-minded. It says this to the believer. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary or your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a what? Like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. But you know what the reality is for the believer? can't be devoured by the roaring lion. In fact, some commentators would say this, this lion is roaring because he's caught in a trap and he is slowly dying. And all he can do, in fact, it's, I don't know, you can check out National Geographic. I've, I've heard it said that, that a lion roars the loudest right before he dies. Sort of the king of the jungle as he's trapped in the, you know, the, the, you know, the little thing, whatever it's called. And um, as he's trapped in that and, and uh, he gives one final roar. And oh, for the believers, the lion can roar at you all day long, but he can't touch you. Notice again what it says. Rejoice in this, believers, right? Look at verse 13 again. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. The voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Can, can we get some rejoicing for the fact? Because I don't know about you, but I get some messages in my mind all the time from Satan. 
right? Telling me how terrible I am, tell me how wicked I am, tell me how dumb I am, tell me how I'm not going to do well, tell me how I'm a terrible husband, a terrible father, a terrible person, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff, these messages that come to my mind. But I'm rejoicing the fact that Jesus says one day all the messengers of Satan will be gone when I am restored in heaven and they will no longer, I will no longer hear his accusations and his lies and his trying to tear me down. But I will be in the presence of Christ. Oh, how we can rejoice in that. So the question is, as we think about ruined or restored, the question is, which are you? Which one are you? Are you God's child who he is in the process of restoring? Are you God's enemy? Are you still to come and have yet to receive a new heart? How do you receive a new heart, you ask? Pastor, it's, it's by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. By saying, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I'm broken and I need healing. I want healing. God, give me a new heart. And God graciously, he has crossed the horizon to find you, to give you that new heart. He knows your name. He's been calling you your whole life. He made you. Which one are you, ruined or restored? You can have permanent rest from your enemies. You can have permanent restoration in the presence of Jesus Christ. Obedience is our, uh, is our call as we are transformed to the image of God. And Christ is our only hope because he's the one that can make us new. So we're going to have a time of response where we'll be able to process that. You'll be able to sing through that. Worship will be here at the front to help you if you uh, need uh, help, you'd like to pray. Maybe you'd like to begin a relationship. You're like, Pastor, I hear you talk about the new heart thing. I see Moana, like the green. I want that. You know, how do I do that? We'd love to help you with that. Now, you can put on your connection card, right? Hey, uh, tell me about this new heart, right? Check check the box. Right, I want to pray to receive Christ. It's on there. And uh, or you can come forward during this time. Uh, myself, some of our deacons and others will be here. We'd love to pray with you. And the people next to you would just rejoice because they've all had to go through the same thing. They were all just nasty tacos, and you can, you can elbow the person next to you and be like, I kind of thought you were like a tacos. I thought you were kind of fiery and, and gnarly, you know? And, um, and they'll say, yeah, I was, until I got a new heart, and now I've got majesty. So let's pray together, and then we'll respond to the Lord. Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the book that you have given us, the scriptures, the Bible, and for how, God, they point us and show us who we truly are, for how they describe your majesty, or how they describe your power. And Lord, it's my prayer for everybody in here, God, that we would hear your truth and that nobody in this room would hear God say to them, I am against you. But instead, they would receive the earlier message and say, I want to restore you. Come to me. Begin a relationship with me. So, Father, do that work in us today and for all of us, Lord. Lord, many times we find ourselves going back to being a gnarly, nasty beast. God, restore us today by your grace through the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, help us to obey you during this time. But most importantly, help us to obey you every day, living a life that pleases you. In Jesus' name we pray.